Hi guys, it's Jenny. Welcome to Mommy's Crime Time. Um, this is going to be the first of three episodes and the topic of this is the book by Sherilyn Cato, Letters from Christopher, Tragic Confessions of the Watts Family Murders. This book is kind of hard to get your hands on right now. I know you can still get it on Amazon. I know that it kind of came under fire for maybe some plagiarism or something. So it has been pulled from a lot of outlets. So in case you're having a hard time finding it, I was just going to do a quick synopsis of it. This is going to be the first 10 chapters I'm going to talk about. Um, these first 10 chapters, they do hold a few things that you will not have heard before. I mean, you may have heard if you heard any review of this book or not that, but that he did not tell the FBI in the February visit. So basically, it starts out, as I said, it's by Sherilyn Cadle. She's a Midwestern grandmother, and it was published by Dorrance Publishing in 2019. Chapter one is about her corresponding with Chris Watts and him deciding to allow her to write a book. Basically, she started writing him in February of 2010, letting him know that she didn't want to be his pen pal or anything like that. She just, you know, wanted to write a book and things like that. So it took three letters before Chris Watts responded to her in March 2019, and he agreed to allow her to write a book about him only if she would give him a chapter to talk about his forgiveness and come into faith. So maybe it could help someone else take a different path than what he did. So she started corresponding with him through more letters, phone calls, and he added her to his visitation and she visited him. She said the first time she visited was April 5th, 2019. And that was right after everything came out with the FBI. So she was about to get details that no one knew yet. He says that when the FBI came to visit him in February of 2019, they did not tell him they were coming. Obviously they were trying to catch him off guard. They told him they didn't want to put stress on him or maybe, you know, they didn't want to give him time to think about what he was going to say. So he said he resented that and that he decided not to tell them everything they wanted to know because he was angry. They just showed up. Um, Sherilyn Cato talks about how he's hard to read and does seem to have emotions. And there are times that he says he knows that he is where he belongs but that being in prison for the rest of your life is hard to come to terms with and he hopes someday to be free. Don't really know why he thinks that. Let's be real. He's never going to be free. And if he is, we definitely have a problem. We need a justice system overhaul. I don't know. That would not be okay. She leaves this chapter basically saying, how do we know if he's going to tell the truth? You know, it's up to us to decide. But if we go by his track record, him and the truth don't do too well together. Chapter two is basically just about his early years that he was born on May 16th, 1985 at Cape Fear Valley Medical Center in Fayetteville, North Carolina, which is crazy because that's the same hospital I was born at. She discusses how he was a quiet child. He grew up in a modest ranch home that his dad was a salesman at a dealership and that his mom worked in finance, that he liked to fly under the radar. He did not date as a teenager that, you know, he just wasn't really into that. He was more worried about flight of the radar, playing sports, things like that. He went to NASCAR technical school afterwards, graduated from there. He was doing pretty well for himself, but he says even as an adult, he did not date much because he was too shy. He goes on to talk about how he met Shanann. I know we've all heard this story that he met her 
on Facebook through a mutual friend of theirs and that at first she was not interested in him, which she should have ran. But that later, um, I guess they started seeing each other and it went from there and they were married in November of 2012. It talks about how Sherilyn Cato feels bad for the grandparents and that they're collateral damage in all of this. That she's hoping that this book maybe will help, you know, us figure out why he did it or get the rest of the story. Chapter three talks about Shanann working for Thrive, how Chris was using the DFT duo patch, that it made him feel like he was on speed, basically, that he barely slept maybe three hours a night and that he was like wired all the time. Um, talks about Shanann going on trips and him getting to go on trips with him. We all know that they went to San Diego shortly before her death with Thrive. And it was, he admits that it was right before that trip that him and Nikki had started to kind of take the relationship to the next level, that they made plans for when he came back, that they were going to meet up. So this is when they say the first like sexual encounters happened. But considering she Googled Shanann Watts and Chris Watts all the way back in September of 2017, I have a really hard time believing that this relationship was that fresh and that new. Shanann had remarked to her friends that before she left for her six-week trip to North Carolina that Chris could not keep his hands off of her and that she didn't think he would have an affair. He said that he didn't think he would have had an affair had she not left. So basically, he's kind of blaming Nikki, but then he's also blaming Shannon. He's like, oh, if she hadn't left, I wouldn't have cheated on her. Not fair. Victim blaming. Kessinger, yes, she can be blamed, but Shanann, no. He said the biggest thing about Nikki was that she caught him off guard because he typically had to pursue women and she actually pursued him. He said that she lured him with lewd sex and nude pictures and he does say that she knew he was married, but he does say that in all fairness, he told her they had both decided to separate. But again, all of those Facebook searches, you cannot tell me she did not know he was happily married when everything on Facebook showed a happy couple that were expecting their third baby. Now, he says one thing in the, this chapter that leads us all to kind of wonder and speculate. He said some really bad things went on at Nikki's house, things that he's very ashamed of and things that he will take to his grave. So it makes us wonder, what in the world is he talking about? We do know that Nikki had Googled some things before one of their dates together in reference to, excuse this, anal sex, um, threesomes, and double penetration, so maybe this is what he's referring to. I'm not sure, but taking it to his grave. This is when he starts to talk about how she pulled out every stop to seduce him and intoxicate him, that pretty much the entire month of July, he lived there with Nikki, and that he felt guilty about his family, what he thought about him. But he talks about how he would have to talk Nikki down the ledge because she became the injured party in her eyes for what was going on. And then after an argument on the 14th, after she came to the house and she saw all the things that he had and his nice home and pictures of the kids is when she basically told him she wanted to have his first son. I'm assuming that the first affair wasn't enough, according to Sherilyn Cadle, but I don't get that the whole thing with the first is kind of annoying. Why couldn't she just been happy that he had all of this and she, if she really cared about him, she would have been okay with him having kids and things like that. But apparently she was a bit psycho. 
Um, Sherilyn Cato asked Chris if he could describe Nikki, and he told her that if he want, if she wanted to see what Nikki was really like, that he would suggest reading Proverbs 7, 5 through 27. Now, I'm not going to read the entire scripture, but I'm just going to read the end of it. And this is how he says he would describe Nikki. He says that basically a young man followed her like a bull being led to slaughter. He was like a deer walking to a trap where a hunter waits to shoot an arrow through its heart. The boy was like a bird flying into a net, never seeing the danger he was in. Now, sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Don't let your heart lead you to an evil woman like that. Don't go where she wants to lead you. She has brought down some of the most powerful men. She has left many dead bodies in her path. Her house is the place of death. The road to it leads straight to the grave. So that's how he decided to describe Nikki. Chapter four is kind of repetitive. Um, it's about the Watts side of the story. Basically, the Ruzek family did not contribute to this book. So it's almost as if they are just kind of putting the Watts side out there since we've all read Shanann's text. So we all know what her side was. They talk about the wedding and the invitations to the engagement party that weren't set out supposedly by his sister, Jamie. Talks about how they didn't go to the wedding because of an issue with the sister not being able to get her hair or nails done or something with the bridal party beforehand. So they decided not to go. They hit on Nutgate. And I'm not going to go into all of that because this whole Nutgate thing is just, we all know what happened. I believe Shanann's side, but they're basically saying that it escalated. The 11-year-old granddaughter went to the kitchen. She got the ice cream out of the freezer, and Cece had an allergy to tree nuts, and that Shanann was afraid of her getting it. According to Cindy, she said that she didn't know that Celeste had gotten the ice cream out, and that it made Shanann mad because she had it and she was saying she can't have that, I'll, you know, basically escalated. But she's playing it like she was, a, you know, she didn't do anything wrong and it just happened. Shanann did try to fix the relationship with her in-laws, but apparently they didn't have any interest in it. They did not go to the funeral. They said that it was best if they did not come. The Watts did, um, did not want to make a scene or make it harder for anyone. So they decided to stay away but they did have their own service with friends and family. Chapter five hits on the finances and the financial situation of the Watts family. He talks about how Shanann was in control of all of the money that he never saw the money. The girls went to a school that was $25,000 a year and that they had to take out $10,000 from his 401k to catch up the house payments. But he says that he doesn't know what she did with the money for sure. He says this was a pressure point for him because he worked all the time and they were constantly having money issues. But Shanann did bring in money of her own. It does seem like she had a ton of stuff, you know, clothes, shoes, purses, things like that. But he doesn't go into a whole lot of depth on it. He talks about how she didn't work and that the kids were in daycare from 7.15 to 4.30 p.m. at this daycare. And it was just costing a lot of money. So... Basically, it's just, you know, their money. Chapter six hits on the mistress. And there are a few revelations in this chapter that we did not know before the FBI interview. Some of those are, for example, that he did not tell the FBI. But as soon as Nikki told him she wanted to have first with him, he started planning how he could kill his family. Basically, he says kill his baby. 
so he could give Nikki their first together. He said that he did not want to get rid of Shanann's baby because he thought it was not his. As he has said before, he wanted to get rid of the baby because it was his and he didn't want it, which is absolutely terrible. That is your child. Regardless of who the mother was, it's still your child. He talks about how whenever Shanann left North Carolina, he had a new sense of freedom, obviously, considering he basically lived with Nikki for a month, although things were not that serious. He suspects that she was bipolar. Go figure. And that... Um, he, they got into an argument once and he told her that before he started seeing her that him and Shanann were trying to have a baby. So she took this as a sign that he was having second thoughts. She freaked out. She started yelling, what the fuck are you doing with me then? So, you know, your relationship couldn't have been that bad if you and Shanann were trying to conceive. So she ran out to the truck. She sat out there for about 30 minutes and he had to convince her to come back inside and talk to him. So, obviously, she had some issues. I mean, he's married. What did you expect? Chapter 7 talks about the last family vacation. And in this chapter, there is also a huge revelation, something that I'd never heard before. So, yeah, things that we've never heard before. These are new details that were not told to the FBI. So, the biggest revelation of this chapter is that the very first night that Chris arrived in North Carolina... Everyone commented how sick Shanann was. She was extremely sick, throwing up all night, slept on the couch. He told her he'd get her something for the headache, and she thought she was taking over-the-counter medication, but actually he gave her 80 milligrams of oxycodone. He says that he did this because he wanted her to lose the baby, and he felt like he gave her a big enough dose to make her miss the ba lose the baby. So here he admits to trying to kill his own baby. He said that when he returns... To Colorado, he went to Nikki's house in his work truck and that she gave him a key to her place. And that at this point, he knew that the relationship was moving to the next level. And he decided that day that he could not have Nikki and his family at the same time. And he says this is the first time he had realized it. But this is also the day that he had to meet Shanann for her ultrasound, the ultrasound where they would find out that the baby was a boy. So that same day at the ultrasound, so again, the same day as the ultrasound, Nikki had started to tell her friends about Chris, and that's when he decided he had to delete his Facebook because he was worried that her friends may see Shanann was pregnant. But this was also a sign to Shanann that something was wrong and it was a red flag. So this is when the real turning point was because at this point is when he decided that he had to get rid of his family. He was about to find out the baby was a boy and he wanted that first with Nikki. Um, Shanann had thought about canceling her trip to Arizona with Thrive, but of course he didn't want that because if she canceled that trip, then he wouldn't be able to spend time with Nikki. So she went ahead and went on the trip and he told her that they'd talk when he got, when she got home. So that gave her a little bit of hope that things were going to be okay. Basically, he gave her just enough to get by, to get her to go. So he was stressed and confused while he was living a double life. But he says that he felt like God gave him three different chances to turn things around. And he said that you know, of those chances, he didn't take any of them and he still went through with it. He says that one day on the way to Nikki's house, he felt like God was urging him to turn around, 
but he kept going. And the whole way there, you know, he still felt that, you know, that God was talking to him, but he kept going or whatever. And all of a sudden, his car started to skid and he ran out the road and almost lost control and immediately knew God was trying to turn him around, but he still went on to her house. So obviously, he wasn't listening too good to what God was trying to tell him. Chapter eight is called The Week Before. And in this chapter, it goes over what was going on, you know, in the actual week before the murders. And that this is when he's the first time he talks about something that I've never heard him talk about. And that's how he felt like there was a darkness over him. Like this darkness had came through his mind and it made him feel like he had to carry out these plans he says people might think this sounds like a ruse or like he's trying to blame the murders on something else and that's not the case, but that the darkness had kind of overtaken him and it actually prevailed. At this point, he also makes a revelation that one of the things that he didn't tell the FBI and that was that the thought of killing the girls did not just happen that morning in the rage you know before he had said that once he killed Shanann you know he he killed the girls no he had planned on killing Shanann and the girls and he had been fantasizing about it for a while he planned the murders that's one reason why he was distant and withdrawn that's how in his mind he was planning to kill her and he said he had been having these thoughts for a couple weeks which doesn't really make sense when he just said that on the 8th after the ultrasound is the day that he decided that he had to kill his family he says he doesn't know why he killed Shanann, Nico, Bella and Celeste he says he did want to be with Nikki no matter what and even if that meant that he had to kill his family to be with her and he says that may not come as a surprise to many people he's never admitted to the fact that he killed his family for Nikki but that's what it was he says that things were really strained between him and and Shanann and that she had kept asking him if he was having an affair. Her friends kept telling her to find out, but that he kept denying it. And at that point, she only had six days left in her life. So it's almost like, you know, she knew in the back of her mind that he was having an affair. His mom says she doesn't understand why she didn't see this coming. But <clears throat> the only person that really knew, according to Chris Watts, was himself. Chapter 9 is going to go into the weekend of the murders. This is when Shanann left to go to Arizona and Chris stayed at home with the girls. Saturday evening is when he told Shanann that he was going to be going to that game that he got the tickets from work for when in reality he got a babysitter. And this was the first time he ever got a babysitter to watch the girls when Shanann was out of town. So it was obviously out of character for him. This is when she got that $62 notification that he had spent that much at dinner and she started to wonder, you know, what did he buy? How did he spend that much? The one thing that I saw that I didn't really understand was it says he, as usual, let Shanann know how much he had spent. It seems he wanted her to find out. But in all actuality, she had an app on her phone or an alert that told her that he spent that. So he didn't necessarily tell her that. She found out on her own. And that's when she started researching to find out how much he spent and started questioning him. Um, the next thing it talks about is that the, you know, the 
average affair is only six to eight weeks and that he was well within that time frame that in six weeks, you know, of being with someone, was that really worth giving up everything that you had all for a six week love affair? He could feel himself going back and forth in his head about killing them. No one knows, not even Christopher, um, what he feels, um, what was going on in his head. He, he did love them. They, he loved them deeply. Why did he feel like he could not leave Shanann and have a girlfriend? So that's what would have made the murder make more sense. He acknowledges that he ruined his own life and everything he ever wanted and threw it all away. And that one decision could have made it different. Well, it's a little late for that now. In this um, chapter, they always talk, they also talk about how he never had a toxicology test or a psychological exam done. They, you know, the toxicology, te toxicology test wouldn't make much sense because he wasn't arrested like immediately. So even if he did have something in his system, it probably would have been there when he was arrested. But that the psychological exam is typically done pretty, you know, immediately after something like this. You would think that would have been done, but that he did not have one done. And he said that he was told the time by his attorneys that they let him do the exam. He could be, it could be held against him in court. So he chose not to, but since he pled guilty, that shouldn't have mattered to him unless it has something to do with the future. He says that if he wants one done now at this point, he would have to pay for it. And obviously he has no money. So he'd have to ask his parents and although they'd be willing to pay for one, he doesn't want one. Why? Is he in denial that there's something seriously wrong with him? Because I think there definitely is. She says, you know, is it worse to find out that you're insane or that you're not insane, but you murdered your whole family? A normal thinking person doesn't think out and act out how to kill their own family. We all know this. If you're unhappy in your marriage or in your home life or whatever, leave. If you're having an affair, you know, leave. You don't have to murder your wife and children. And I guess that's what kills me about this case the most is, you know, people do murder their spouses. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but they do. And that's tragic enough. But that's something that happens often. If you watch ID channel or any of that, you see it. But to murder your children in the way that he murdered his children is something that makes this case stand out. And that's what makes it such a Everyone wants to understand why. And if they can't understand why, they can't let go of it. That's why we're all obsessed with it. Back to the book. She goes on to say that he has a hard time looking people in the eye when talking to him. So she asked him why. And he said he's always been that way. His mom verified that and said he was even that way when he was a teenager. So is it lack of confidence, social anxiety? You know, typically people say if you don't look someone in the eye, you're hiding something from them. But Supposedly, he's never been able to look people in the eye, so it's almost like, well, he might be hiding something, but you never know, so I'm not real sure about that. He makes the revelation that he never felt the emotion of anger until the morning of August 13th when he killed his family. I don't really understand how that's possible or normal, how you could be a 30-something-year-old man who's never felt anger, but so he says. He says that he was not in a rage that morning, as he previously claimed, not in a rage at all, and that he wasn't in a rage until he got to the oil fields. And maybe that's why he was so sloppy at the oil fields, you know, leaving the sheet, not digging the hole deep enough. You know, there was all those things that he did wrong that 
maybe he got such a rage. He got so overwhelmed. I don't know. I personally feel like he wasn't done. I feel like he had another plan. I feel like when Shanann's friend came over, it messed up his ultimate plan. The author goes on to say that he does not show much, much emotions and that she's not sure that he's capable of really showing emotions. But she does say that he did think of others besides himself. She talks about how he took care of his girls and all that. I'm sorry, but he must not have thought about his girls too much after what he did to them. Chapter 10 is the last chapter we're going to cover. And this is on the night before. Talks about how Shanann only had 36 hours left to live. She goes on detail about, the one thing about this book is she goes back and forth, back and forth. Like she'll talk about something, then she'll go back in time, then she'll skip forward again. So it's kind of hard to follow at times because it, it, it comes and goes. But she talks about Shanann's life in and abruptly and things like that. Um, August 12th, 2018 was a good day. By all accounts, Shanann was in Arizona and Chris was at home with Bella and Cece. And he does admit that for the last couple weeks they had gotten on his nerves and he didn't remember any other time they had gotten on his nerves so much. This is because he would much rather have been with Nikki. So the girls were rubbing his nerves, as he says. He took the kids to a birthday party with water balloons, stuff like that. But he forgot their swimsuits and towels. But they had a lot of fun anyway. He said that Nikki kept texting him at that time, telling him she wanted him. So... It made it harder for him to focus on what was going on at that point in time. It talks about how he had an IQ of 140 and that a genius is 140 or over. So maybe his uh, genius brain didn't afford him any common sense. There's been a lot of speculation and talk over this 111 minute phone call between Chris and Nikki on the night. Well, I said the night before because this would be on the night of the 12th. The murder took place in the morning on the 13th. So there was this 111-minute phone call. Nikki seems to not recall what this was about at all when the police have asked her. But Chris says that they had phone sex. And that she had a hold of him, pulling him into her, and he could not escape. She was like a drug you get hooked on and can't get enough. So she's all he could think about. So this point right here, right now is when he says something that is so disturbing. He said that he already knew that he was going to kill his family the next morning. He says he didn't tell Nikki about it. He had planned on what he was going to do or what he was going to say to her to make sense of it. But when he tucked his little girls into bed that night, he said he knew it would be the last time he tucked them in. He didn't want it to be, but he knew it would be. This is horrible. How could you take your kids to a party, play with them, give them a shower, feed them, put their lotion on, give them their snack, knowing you were going to kill them the next morning? I, I just, I cannot fathom that as a mother or even just as a person. I feel like that is so sick and twisted. He says that on the morning of the 13th, he checked out of his mind and allowed the thoughts he had been entertaining to become a reality that they took him over. But then Shanann had texted him and said the plane was delayed. And this disappointed him because he wanted to talk to her about everything. He just said he had already planned the murder. So did he want to talk to her or did he want to murder her? At this point, you know, this chapter basically comes to an end about how Shanann was seeing her friends for the last time at the airport. So in my next video, I'll, I'll go over the, um, the next set of chapters, which will be 
chapter 11 through 21 and we'll discuss the extreme revelations in those chapters because there are some in, in there that are, are pretty rough. I'll put it that way. That are hard to, hard to read. I'll tell you that. Um, I appreciate you guys listening. I know this is a long video. It was a lot to cover. But please like this video. Subscribe. Share it with your friends. And in the next day or so, I'll be sure to get the next section uploaded so that you guys can find out what happens in the next part. Thank you and have a good night.